0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: The story, the overriding story that everyone is concerned about is something we told you about, well, about 24 hours ago when Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross uh, announced that uh, the United States was going to impose tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum, uh, significant tariffs, 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum, which is rather interesting. And by the way, this is not the only country that's impacted. Mexico is impacted, but a number of the European nations are upset about uh, the tariffs that have been imposed. Uh, We are told that uh, the Prime Minister yesterday talked with Vice President Mike Pence about this and uh, tried to express to the Vice President that uh, this idea of Canada being a threat to the U.S. economy just didn't cut it. Uh,
2: He seemed uh, to understand very clearly that uh, national security issues don't really apply when you talk about steel or aluminum from Canada, particularly given that uh, we have aluminum in American jets, uh, we have Canadian steel in um,
1: in American armored vehicles. And on and on it goes. Uh, And even if uh, Vice President Pence seemed to understand that logic, uh, apparently his boss doesn't. Joining us to talk about the implications is uh, Keenan Lewis, president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. How are you doing this morning? Other than that,
0: yeah, I'm doing your, fine. You got your Tiger Town Council shirt on. You're ready to go. Yeah, for tonight? I'm ready to go for tonight's game. It's a beautiful Friday. I wish we didn't have to talk about this, but it's good to see you. It's been a while. Did you know? We kind of
1: knew this was coming. I mean, he did put a, a date on this and said, "Look, do you guys get an exemption? It's only until the end of May." Uh, I think a lot of people were hoping and thinking that he was just going to extend that uh, that exemption because we haven't finished the NAFTA deal yet. But bingo, we've got this, and now we have to live
0: with it. Yeah, this goes back uh, well to the to the campaign, right? When uh, he was running for president and was trashing NAFTA, uh, and that was kind of the uh, beginning, uh, the simmering of of the trade war. And I think uh, yesterday, today. Was the the very first you know uh, cannon shot uh, the Fort Sumter of uh, the whole trade war um, between uh, the United States and Canada and it's it's really sad I think that you know and I say this as a citizen of both countries and uh, the the long and storied history of cooperation of good neighborliness of uh, alliances uh, defense alliances uh, complete integration of the economy uh, similar cultures. Um, you know, in, in the last 200 years, no country has done anything this aggressive um, in uh, this relationship. And so it's a, it's a sad day. It's, it's, uh, it's tough, to, you know, un- given the fact that uh, you, know, you know that there's a president uh, in the White House that doesn't care about that history, doesn't care about uh, his allies, and is willing to inflict pain uh, against his allies, and, and all under spurious circumstances, invoking national security as a result. So we're all being gaslit <laughs> and and it's it's uh it's quite incredibly crazy and and I think uh you know I, I hope it doesn't go on uh, much longer. We've seen the, this pattern of, you know, uh back and forth and unpredictable behavior. It's all part of the the playbook apparently. But uh yeah, it's it's definitely a sad day. And
1: and, and my immediate reaction yesterday was okay, this is the, obviously going to be some negative reaction and the prime minister Uh, some of his most, uh, I I guess, strident comments about this to to get his point across. But I thought, well, it's certainly going to be a different side uh, on the other side of the border. It's not. Uh, Both Republicans and Democrats are saying, what is he thinking? Because they seem to understand the implications to the U.S. economy. And I don't don't know if Donald Trump does and doesn't give a damn or, or whether he just doesn't get it. But as we've talked about in the past, 35 of the 50 states have Canada as their number one trading partner. And of those other 15 that don't, apparently it's number two. So there's a huge implication here to the U.S. economies that senators and governors have talked to the president about in the past. And he simply ignored that advice. This is universally
0: unpopular among uh, the business community. Except for Wilbur Ross and U.S. Steel. Except for Wilbur Ross, there's a couple uh, steel companies that have been advocating for this. Um, but generally, uh, the entire U.S. business community, political community, uh, the the labor uh, community. So you have labor and business united on this very issue. Um, so it is uh, completely unpopular uh, within the United States, and um, it it. it People there, and I, I was there um, about a month and a half ago or so after the the very first sort of flaring up mm-hmm. of, of uh, tariffs and all that, and it was quite amazing that um, nobody knew what was happening. Nobody. Uh, I, I spoke with a, um, a Republican staffer on Capitol Hill, a Democratic staffer on Cap- Capitol Hill. Two of the the council for the trade. Um, the, the trade uh, chair um, um, in uh, the in uh, on uh, Capitol Hill uh, f- for the House of Representatives. I talked to the United States Chamber of Commerce. They're right across the White House. They have no idea what's going on within the White House. They have no idea how they're arriving at some of their figures uh, when they come out with you know we're going to slap tariffs on on this of this amount. There, these uh, these figures uh, and these uh, courses of action are not coming out of um, you know the, the trade community, out of industry. Uh, the auto industry is not advocating for the certain things that the Trump administration is, is, is just, asking just for the within opposite, the NAFTA. Right? Just the opposite, in yeah, fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, You know, this is, uh, it's just um, erratic and and strange and irrational behavior. And I thought the the prime minister did a really good job yesterday. I thought it was very forceful. Um, You know, we're we're not dealing with rational people, but we are dealing with bullies. And uh, we do have to respond in a strong and uh, swift and immediate way. And I thought the prime minister did a great job. I just wish that uh, tariffs, counter-tariffs, were going to be imposed uh, immediately. And I don't know why we weren't ready to do that. Uh, they have a month grace period, and, and our companies here on the Canadian side are dealing with chaos right now through the supply chain.
1: Yeah, and and by the way, did, in a bizarre way, create some sense of unanimity here. Even uh, opposition leader Andrew Shearer uh, tweeted yesterday expressing his support for the prime minister and his uh, approach to this and, and the way yeah. they were gonna do this. So it's brought us together, right. uh, maybe for all the wrong reasons, yeah. but it's brought us together. Uh, but we are striking back, Christy Freeland and the prime minister both announced yesterday that they have a. They've been working on this. I mean, this may be sitting in somebody's desk drawer, but they have a list, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see what's on the list. And, and from an economic standpoint, from, uh, from as a chamber of commerce president. Uh, It's interesting. They're not striking back at major industries. They're striking strategically at some of those states that are going to be impacted, at goods that are being sent up here at a big, which are going to cost an awful lot more now. And they've imposed tariffs on. Oh, it sounds silly. Things, things like uh, you know, ballpoint markers and things like that. Sleeping bags. Yeah, (laughs) but apparently, you know, it's it's going to have a a negative impact on this. So uh,
0: they do know how to do this strategically. I mean, and this is going to get messy yeah it, well which is precisely what you want to avoid because it then devolves into erratic irrational behavior and 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 you know business thrives on predictability and so this makes it completely unpredictable and so will uh be a drag on uh you know the economy in both countries for sure there will be real impacts obviously with the increase uh costs of of goods uh flowing between uh the two countries so it um you know it with steel for example it, it is really easy because you know the the steel trade is fairly balanced there's as much steel coming in from the US uh, as going into the U.S. Uh, from Canada, and so in that regard, it was really easy to say, okay, steel. You know, in within the steel industry, we're going to treat uh, steel shipments the same way that uh, the uh, Canadian gov- or that uh, the American government is going to treat uh, Canadian shipments of steel. So, th- yeah, and, and and again, the issue is, unfortunately, we've got a we've got a month grace period, or um, giving them a month grace period. And I think that reflects the fact that. You know, it takes time for for policy to be made at, at the highest levels, and then to trickle down to the front lines. And um, so I'm I'm amazed, and I don't. This is where I thought that you know there there may be chaos at the borders because, uh, you know, the customs and border patrol agents they're now dealing with this. They have no idea what to do. What form do you use? What what? Where's the, the where's the table? Where you know? What's the direction for us on the front lines? And so, um, you know, those types of things, it takes 30, 60 days for it to, to really make its way down to the uh, the front lines. And um, and they're doing it on the U.S. side in a matter of hours. And so I think that there there will be chaos. Hopefully, it's not going to manifest itself in, in, in terms of delays at the border. But there is chaos, as I said, within the supply chain. Um, customers of, of DeFasco right now are don't know what to do defasco doesn't know what to do what form do we use what what calculation what what are we eating because we've already agreed to a price with company X in, in the U.S., now that is uh, now these goods are going to be 25% more expensive. But we have a contract, so we're going to have to eat that. And do we delay the shipment? Uh, do we hope that within a week, um, you know, this gets resolved, uh, that they're able to talk at the the G7 meeting next week, and you know, and Donald Trump will feel differently uh, because we know this is whim-based policymaking. And so, hopefully, at some point. So, but how long do you wait? Um, so a huge amount of disruption uh, within the supply chains for sure. you'd love to be a fly in the wall at that g seven meeting next oh, week yeah. in Quebec, uh, <laughs> because
1: we want to make this clear. I mean, we're talking about the Canadian response to this, but this is not just impacting Canada. Germany is ticked off about this, so is France., uh, so is the u k and others. <laughs> Amazingly enough, Australia has an exemption. I, I don't know where that was coming from. Mm. Uh, but but uh, everyone else is getting nailed by this, and they're having a, a, that same sort of an impact. Where they're all going to be in the same room next week, yeah. and and Trump apparently is going to be there. So it's it's going to be fascinating to see just how
0: they respond to this. Well, they're ticked off because this is completely illegal. Completely illegal. You cannot invoke national security uh, reasons for invoking tariffs when against your allies. <laughs> and when you're really acknowledging that this is leverage in uh, trade negotiation, so it's completely illegal. But unfortunately, uh, the impacts to us and our companies are happening right now.
1: Yeah, and and there are some, I guess, channels they can follow here. I mean, they can protest and, and file a grievance with the Do- World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. uh, which Canada has done before and has won yeah, actually gone. against the but United it just takes States. Time. Uh, and but, but what I'm hearing now is that all of these nations. Uh, the, the U.K., uh, France, Britain, the ones we have just talked about here, are all planning on doing the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, China apparently is planning on, on filing a grievance with the WTA against uh, U.S. trade policies. So th- the, he's he's declared war on on all his allies. Yeah. I, I mean, economic uh, and and military allies. He's basically said, I'm going to try to punish all of you guys. I mean, I, I still, I guess people can't seem to get their head around why
0: he is doing this, because all he's doing is creating enemies. Everything he touches turns to rubbish. It's the reverse Midas effect. And he he creates enemies where there were none prior uh, previously. Within the North American steel industry, there was a great deal of harmony there were no issues among us firms mexican firms canadian firms uh they all belong to the same associations in in washington and in ottawa and mexico city uh there is great uh unanimity among them that nafta is a is a good thing and he came in, drove a wedge. Now there are a couple steel companies that have uh, operations primarily in the U.S. That, as I said, are are advocating for these tariffs. Everybody else is against them within the uh, within the steel industry. So he's driving a wedge um, in 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 the entire. The one issue that the North American steel industry did have was with China, and that's the whole purpose behind. Um, this impulse to invoke 232, we we understood this. We we've been saying this for a couple of years as a Chamber of Commerce that we have to pre- uh, prevent dump steel, non-market steel coming in from China because it distorts the market here in North America. We've been talking about this for a long time, so we understand the impulse and it's it's right. But he's he's training his sights on the wrong countries, on allies when everybody agrees it's China. But China seems to be getting off quite easily in this whole uh, trade. But issue. you were, when you were down in Washington a few
1: weeks ago though Keenan I know you talked to members of the American Chambers of Commerce and and what we're hearing right now is the this is going to have a ne- negative impact on a number of, of companies in a, in a number of states down there with midterm elections and we all know the politics of what's going on here right now the the Republicans don't want to lose control of the house uh, and and the very states that handed Donald Trump his victory uh, those being Michigan Ohio and Pennsylvania states nobody expected him to win but did, uh, are the ones that are going to be most negatively impacted. I mean, Wibble Ross says this may have about a one percent impact on, on on the GDP. That, how many
0: jobs is that? Yeah, that
1: sounds like a small number, but you know, if you're one of the guys that gets laid off in an auto plant in Ohio,
0: that matters. It's multi billions of dollars worth of impact. Yeah. That you're, you're that's self-injury. <laughs> yeah. Self-harm, that you're and again for no reason. Um, other than, I guess, building up uh, leverage in a trade negotiation. But the the whole yeah, purpose— Yeah, but that doesn't
1: make sense either. You know, we were told—I'm sure you saw the story in the Washington Post th- last week— that there was an after deal, mm-hmm. that the, the both sides—all well, three sides that come together, they presented it to Trump, and he apparently sent it back and said, you haven't got enough concessions from them, I'm not going to sign this. Mm-hmm. So we're back to square one right now, but only because Donald Trump didn't get what he wanted. Apparently the negotiators thought it was a good deal for everybody.
0: Well, it, again, it, it depends on what he's feeling on any given hour and, and the last person who's talked to him. But you, you mentioned the impact that this is going to have um, within you know the Midwest and manufacturing states and all that. It, it's true that NAFTA, um, the the trade agreement and, and what, what ha- it has unleashed over the last couple of decades since... Um, it was signed. Is this uh, complete integration of the manufacturing supply chain, uh, especially in, in automobiles? Uh, that's you know the the industry that you look to at, at this point in time to, to understand how completely integrated and the, you know the fact that a car travels across the border you know multiple numbers of times. It does and. Um, and that's where it's going to have the impact and, and that's where I said you know I, I wish I didn't say in, in the paper that there was going to be chaos at the border I don't want to be alarmist but there is chaos within the supply chain and that ultimately is going to start to manifest itself in, in delays I, again do we make a shipment now of steel uh, down to that uh, car plant in Indiana, or do we wait next week and hope that things are different? And then if things aren't different, then ultimately, okay, they need that steel in order to complete their orders, but there's now going to be delays, it's now going to uh, uh, be more costly for the consumer, um, and, uh, and people will probably lose jobs. I don't know if it will that will all uh, manifest itself by the time the election comes around, but uh, there will certainly be impacts.
1: And, and if there is some tie here with NAFTA, and that's what a lot of people seem to be thinking, that this is really a, a, an idea to try to gain leverage in those negotiations, uh, Canada can wait this out for the short term anyway. I mean, because they have allies in this. I mean, the ones we've just referred to in the European uh, Union, of course, uh, that that are also in, in, impacted in a similar fashion like that. So I, I just don't see
0: the win in this for Trump. We might be able to wait this out as, as a country, But, uh, you know, our our companies here in Hamilton right now that uh, rely on the U.S. market, some, you know, some maybe 20 percent of their their goods go to the U.S. market. For some, it's 90 percent of their goods. And I don't know how long they're going to be able to hold on.
1: Keenan Loomis, uh, president of the Hamilton Chamber. Uh, more to come on this, obviously, in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks for coming in today, though. Thanks, Bill. See you at the stadium tonight.
0: Yeah. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, we should mention, though, we were just speaking with Keenan Loomis, of course, from the Chamber of Commerce about uh, the steel industry here in Hamilton and how this is going to be impacted by this tariff announcement. Uh, we have reached out to uh, both of them. And uh, they said, uh, well, I'll paraphrase it. They said they're not quite ready to make public statements on this just yet. They're trying to, I guess, uh, you know, just digest what's gone on here and, and try to understand the impact that it's going to have. And there will be an impact, to be sure. But uh, I guess they have to be a little guarded in their response here because we need to keep in mind, especially from the Arsenal Middle, uh, DeFasco, that Arsenal Middle also has plants down in the states. And I guess there's going to be some uh, conference calls going back and forth to understand just what's going to happen. But to be clear, the federal government in this country, and including the Prime Minister, uh, are very concerned about this.
2: We find ourselves the target of punitive tariffs on Canadian aluminum and steel under pretext of a 232 national security provision. Let me be clear. These tariffs are totally unacceptable.
1: Uh, and again, that's that, that reference that uh, the Prime Minister was making, to was uh, Trump's assertion that there's a national security issue here. Uh, you can take that for what it's worth. There are some who think that, that, that the U.S. action is illegal. Uh, that would have to be determined by uh, some sort of a court or the World Trade Organization or somebody, I guess. But in the meantime, we have to deal with this. Joining us to talk about the implications is Olaid Herjazi, who is an associate professor of economic analysis and policy and academic director at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today.
2: It's my pleasure. We,
1: we don't want to be alarmist here, but I guess how the overriding question right now, Professor, how concerned should we be about this?
2: Very concerned. So as we all know and all your listeners know, Donald Trump makes big, big statements, but rarely carries through with those statements. And when he ran for president, he talked about how he's going to go after Mexico and China, and he never really did that. Then he attacked the NAFTA, and we never thought we would be at this point. We thought it was just rhetoric. But he threatened Canada, Mexico, Europe, and China. He basically told them, we're going to have tariffs on aluminum steel imports into the U.S. unless you give the U.S. concessions in your trade relationship. So he really blackmailed all of his trading partners, thinking they would succumb to the pressure. You know, as a sovereign nation, you know, Justin Trudeau and um, uh, Christia Freeland, I think, are doing a fabulous job. You simply can't succumb to this kind of a pressure. This doesn't work in international diplomacy. The fact that we've come this far, I think, we're potentially at the beginning of a protracted trade war, possibly.
1: When you hear these terms... The, the, the I think the image that's conjured up in a lot of our minds is that these are the sorts of things you impose on somebody who who, you, who is considered to be a, a political enemy or an economic enemy. Sanctions, uh, tariffs against uh, North Korea, against Russia for some of the egregious things that they have done. I, is there a precedent here at all, Professor, for a country like the United States imposing these tariffs on quote-unquote friendly nations?
2: Yeah, your your insights, Bill, are spot on So typically when countries misbehave, impose these kinds of tariffs to punish them because engaging in the global economy is beneficial. Yes, in the aftermath of the 1929 financial market collapse, one of the many factors that took the, the global economy from the financial crash into the Depression was protectionism. That's in 1929. And again, in the early 2000s and 2002, George Bush implemented Tariffs on steel imports from the U.S. that end up costing the U.S. about 200,000 jobs, but George Bush responded quickly and eliminated those tariffs quickly. Let's see if Donald Trump does the same.
1: Well, let's talk about the impact. I think you know we, we want to get in obviously, and where our first concern is going to be the impact it's going to have on us, especially here in Hamilton. Uh, you know, we've got two major steel producers, Stelco just trying to get back on their feet now. Uh, and and you know, there's been some positive signs about what's happening there since Bedrock purchased them. But this is this is this is going to bring these guys to their knees. I mean, this is going to have a negative impact on the Canadian steel industry in general, is it not?
2: Yeah, and uh, this is not good news. And I feel terrible for all of the people that work in the steel industry because you think you know, good families, good jobs, you know, working really hard to put food on the table for the families, and then. For political reasons, you have this gentleman in Washington making these policies that are completely misguided and disrupt the prosperity of all of the people in Hamilton where the steel industry is concentrated. Absolutely. I mean, they must not have slept last night, and I I have tremendous sympathy for them. Uh, But I think this speaks to a broader issue, Bill, and the idea that Canada... The United States is our number one trading partner, and it will be for a long time. But we need to develop trading relationships with other countries so that when this happens with the United States, all of the people of Hamilton aren't so negatively Affected, I think it's going to
1: be quite dramatic. That's, uh, I think, one of the subtext, isn't it, Wally? That we need to keep in mind here is that obviously we're talking about the impact on Canada, as we should, but we're not alone here. I mean, you know, these tariffs are imposed on, on the UK, on other European Union's, and and there's equal anger going on in in those parts as well. So uh, it's it, it's it's there's I guess stre- strength and unity here right now because there's we actually seem to be speaking with one voice right now. But uh, the outrage about these policies.
2: Yeah, and the remarkable thing, and to talk to your insight earlier, it's all of the United States' closest allies. And to argue under this 232 national security provision, the idea that somehow Canada or Europe is a national security threat to the U.S., it, 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 it's quite outrageous. Now, it, I'm hoping, we are all hoping that at the G7 leaders' meeting coming up this week in Quebec, uh, next week in, in Quebec, this will be the first time Donald Trump comes to Canada as the U.S. president, but the G7 leaders will be there. And let's hope they can convince uh, Donald Trump and the Americans to back off this because you're exactly right. The other six members of the G7 are completely unified. But most importantly, Bill, this is an unbelievably misguided policy in order to benefit the steel industry and a lot of people in Donald Trump's base. The average person in Canada, the average person in the U.S., the average person in Europe is going to pay much higher prices for anything that has steel or any other product that's part of the retaliation, and lots of people are going to lose their jobs, and it's so unnecessary, but it's just driven by misguided Political decisions in Washington,
1: but but uh, this is the politics of it. Obviously, Willie, the, the way they they try to to couch this, and then uh, Commerce Secretary Ross, in in addressing that concern yesterday, said, "Look, it, he says if they retaliate against us, uh, the impact is going to be minimal." He said maybe one percent of our, our our economic input. <laughs> which sounds pretty small and menial. and You figure, okay, there's no big deal. But 1% of the U.S. economy equates to a lot of jobs, that and people could get laid off and probably will get laid off down there. And so as much as U.S. steel may benefit from this, as you mentioned, people in the auto industry and some of the subsidiary industries uh, are right in the crosshairs here right now, and they may pay the price for this.
2: Yeah, and so um, if you look at Canada and Europe, the goods that we will likely retaliate on, and to Canada's credit, We didn't impose tariffs on U.S. imports into Canada immediately. They're giving it a month in order to consult to do exactly what you said, Bill, is to ensure the unintended consequences aren't severe because the last thing Canada wants to do is hurt other Canadian companies. But the kinds of products that from the U.S. that will likely be targeted are things like oranges and orange juice. The reason for that is Florida went Republican in the last election, by hurting the Florida economy by restricting imports of oranges and other Florida based products into Canada or Europe, the Florida economy will suffer. So in the upcoming midterm elections, Florida will most likely go Democrat, or this will push it to go Democrat. And similarly with Harley Davidson, Bikes, Bourbon, and other products that come from all of what we call these swing states. So in the U.S., all of the states that could go Democrat or Republican, we are targeting imports from there so that those states tilt Democrat. And that, in my opinion, is the way Donald Trump is going to be forced to change his approach to global trade is he has to lose his majority in
1: Congress. The Harley-Davidson story, I'm glad you brought that up. It's uh, rather instructive, I think, uh, because uh, Trump, of course, was praising his tax cut and how it was going to create all kinds of jobs in the states. And uh, Harley-Davidson took the tax cut and said, thanks very much, and closed the plant down. And they're building one offshore in Malaysia, I think it is. Uh, that That's not something that's part of the Trump narrative now. But, I mean, that's the reality that they're facing. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the the, the three states that are, I guess, widely considered was to give Trump his victory – uh, were the ones that he was not expecting to win. Those being Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those are the three states that are going to be most impacted by this. And and the workers in those states, uh, you got to wonder if this guy is not connecting the dots here. That this could actually cost the Republicans in the midterm elections.
2: Yeah, and, and that's why most of the Republicans. So with all of the outrageous statements and actions Donald Trump has done, you you know you know this better than I do that there was this tremendous dismay that the Republican Party would not distance themselves from Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I think we're finally starting to see that because at the end of the day, politicians want to get reelected. And you're exactly right. Many, many, many Republican senators and congressmen are lining up against Donald Trump because they understand that um, this is going to hurt the economies in the states that they need to win in the next election. But Donald Trump lives in a bubble. Donald Trump has his advisors, and I have to say this one point, which is so remarkable. As a professor, as someone who does research, when you think about Canada in the U.S., but the U.S. in particular, with the greatest universities, and you think about China, which is a developing country, in all when you look at the trade teams leading the trade negotiations, those in the U.S. negotiating teams don't nearly understand the side effects of the policies that they're proposing, and the Chinese are way ahead of them. So the Chinese understand the global implications of these policies much better than the U.S. Donald Trump lives in a bubble, and I believe that's one of the reasons why we're on the brink. And I don't want to say we're in a trade war, because it really depends on whether everyone retaliates, but we're not in a good place.
1: There's a couple of factors here that I wanted to bring into the conversation. We seem to be talking, I guess, at the level about national trade, and that that's certainly important. But but I guess what gets lost in the discussion sometimes anyway we we'll lead is that there's a great deal of trade that goes on uh, between Canada or from certain provinces with certain states down there. And uh, in as much as we pride ourselves in being you know the U.S.'s biggest trade partner, 35 of the 50 United States have Canada as their number one trading partner. And apparently, of the other 15, I think 10 of them right now we're number two. Uh, so this is going to have an impact on state economics. I, I got to figure the governors are going to weigh in on this.
2: Yeah, and this is you know what you know what's so surprising is um, the liberal government, in my opinion, took exactly the right strategy over the first year in, uh, of their mandate. They actually worked with state governors and people at the state level to argue to them exactly what you just said is that Canada is the number one trading partner for the majority of U.S. states and second or third for the rest of them. And there's something on the order of 8 million jobs in the United States that depend upon trade with Canada. So this is not, as Donald Trump says, he says NAFTA is the worst trade deal in history. He says that Canada and Mexico are ripping off the Americans, which is totally made up because NAFTA, in the empirical and academic studies that have been done, have shown that millions of jobs have been created, but all three countries have benefited significantly. Um, And this idea that somehow the Americans are losing, Canada and Mexico are winning, that trade is a zero-sum game, that Canada and Mexico benefit at the expense of the U.S., it's completely at odds with the evidence. So you're exactly right. States are not happy today either. Just Donald Trump and his inner circle.
1: You mentioned China a second ago. I want to touch on that in, in, in the couple of minutes we have left here, Willie, really, because that's an interesting idea here. Uh, wherever there's a void created, and Trump seems to be creating a void between his allies. At least they we used to be his allies. Uh, in, in as far as economics are concerned. Does China move in to try to fill that? Do they simply say, hey, guys, I know you, you're you not crazy about some of our practices, but we can cut some deals here. We'll work with the European Union. We'll work with Canada and Mexico. Uh, you don't have to worry too much about this. I mean, is there a possibility that this is a an opportunity for China to, to gain a foothold in some of these markets? Um,
2: you're, you're, your insights are exactly right on. You're right on because the TPP the Trans-Pacific Partnership was meant as a trade agreement to check China. The idea would be all of the countries that surround China, the United States uh, would then be sort of the leading developments of trade so that these economies in Asia become part of the American sphere of influence. Now that the United States have withdrawn from the TPP, now that they're withdrawing from global trade, the Chinese are exactly filling in the void. The Chinese are out there building infrastructure, hard and soft, between it and other, other countries that used to be American allies. And the idea is that their influence is rising, the United States influence is falling, and Donald Trump is accelerating this. This is why the American people need to understand that in order for the United States to be that great nation, to be the world leader... It has to be engaged in the global economy. It's inconsistent to make America great again and not be engaged in the global economy. And as the Americans retreat, to your point, countries like Russia and China are filling the void, and we're seeing that all over the place. To the detriment of the Americans, and every one of your listeners should understand that when it's detriment of the Americans, it's a detriment to Canadians. We need a strong United States because it's our number one trading partner. It's part of our security umbrella. We need the United States an enlightened leadership to path to, uh, to you know to, to take us forward globally. There's so many dark trends, and Donald Trump is not the leader we need in these troubling times.
1: The Chinese thing I find fascinating, though, for a number of reasons. And the the, the one that I'm always looking for to happen, and I think it's probably closer to it than we ever have been, is is the Chinese auto industry. And I know that 10 years ago that, that was a joke, but it's not a joke anymore. Uh, they've made huge advancements. Uh, there's some questions as to how they got the technology, but they're still doing that. And, and you got to wonder if the auto pact is going to be impacted and NAFTA is going to be impacted and the auto industry is going to be impacted. Does uh, China come over here and say, "Hey, we'll build cars over there, just like Hyundai and others have done in in Canadian markets, uh, Honda and everyone else," uh, and and say, "Don't worry about these guys to the south of you; we can do something." I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it seems to me a real possibility at this stage.
2: I I think it's I think it is going to happen. I don't think it's a possibility. I think it is happening, and it, it, there's a lot been written here at the Rotman School of Management about the rise of China, but particularly when it comes to the technological capabilities of Chinese business. And when you look at the United States attacking China for stealing intellectual property, and I'm not an apologist for China, there's a lot of stuff going on. But having said that, the United States was very, very happy to have a partner in China when China was doing low-value, cheap products but china's moving up the value chain very very quickly and bill it's unbelievable to say this but the chinese are surpassing the americans and the canadians when it comes to the development and implementation of technologies around artificial learning and machine, artificial intelligence and machine learning applying that in their manufacturing processes so the auto industry will move there they're moving up the value chain and this is why, even in the Canadian example, when the Chinese state-owned company wanted to buy this Canadian company called Acon, mm-hmm. the Trudeau government just last week blocked it. And one of the reasons they blocked it was the Chinese are absorbing global technology, Canadian and American, and they're using it to develop their economy. So China is developing much faster than we thought, which is a surprise because the approach to compete with China is completely at odds with the approach the approach being deployed by the U.S. government today.
1: Uh, boy, so many ramifications to this, and I guess we have to let some of the dust settle before we can move on to next steps. But thank you so much for taking some time for us today, uh, Wally, to give us some perspective on this. It's greatly appreciated.
2: And hopefully the next time we speak, it'll be more optimistic.
1: I hope so, too. Thanks again. Have a great weekend. You too. That's uh, Waleed Hijazi, of course, Associate Professor in Economic Analysis at uh, the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: LRT construction will begin next year and yesterday at a special uh, GIC meeting, that's a General Issues Committee meeting at uh, City Hall, uh, they had some discussions about the LRT project as you might expect. Uh, one of the councillors was worried this was going to turn into uh, what he called another stadium debacle. And that, of course, was Ancaster councillor Lloyd Ferguson. In four years' time, we're going to the polls again. And if this whole city is dug up, it's going to be a difficult campaign unless we can give very simple, clear responses what the consequences are if they're late. And you can't, you can't even tell me, so I don't know how we can tell the public in a 30-second interview because it's the public that's going to be inconvenienced by this. Well, that's uh, a concern that a lot of people have raised uh, since this whole project came to light, of course, some time ago. And uh, an ongoing concern. I'm just talking to some of the businesses that are located along the proposed route at this stage, and uh, they're raising those same sort of concerns. So uh, joining us on the uh, program to talk about this is Chris Jacobson, who is the acting director of the LRT project for the city of Hamilton. Chris, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, not a problem anytime. time. Uh, and, and congratulations on, on the appointment as the acting director right now. I'm not so sure if that's because people liked you or what. This is, this is a tough job. This is like being the captain of the Titanic for some people, but you've handled it very well so far. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Let, let's talk a little bit about some of the concerns that were raised, and, and maybe we'll get right into some of the things that Councillor Ferguson talked about, because he's made those statements on our program many times about uh, LRT, and, and obviously he was... Uh, deeply involved in the stadium uh, project and problems that resulted from that because he was the chairman of that committee, that subcommittee. But talk to us, if you could, Chris, about about the construction itself and, and the impact that it's going to have and, and whether or not you have the ability, as Councillor Ferguson asked yesterday, uh, to be able to put some parameters in, in a contract uh, that that he thinks are going to give us some sense of security about how this is going to get done and how quickly.
3: So, yeah, the the concerns that were raised at council are, are not new concerns. Those are concerns that uh, were raised uh, during the environmental assessment process and have been talked about uh, really since the, the project got reinitiated back in, in 2015. You know, how are we going to con- control construction? Are we going to have 14 kilometers of construction happening uh, for five years? Uh, you know, so uh, yesterday at council we did outline some parameters, some of the high-level principles that we were including in the, uh, the contract uh, to ensure that, you know, the project can proceed uh, and be completed within five years, uh, but also to do our best to try to, to, to minimize that disruption to, to the businesses, to the homeowners, just to, to general traffic. And as you can appreciate, this is, this is a, a complex project. Uh, so, so trying to find that right balance uh, between you know, dictating exactly uh, how the project is going to be completed, and then also allowing that flexibility to the, uh, to the constructor so that they can also maximize uh, their efficiency, their, their time to construct, so to speak. Uh, you know, that, that's a tough balance to try to strike, and I'm not sure we'll ever get it just perfect. Uh, well, You're we'll not going to
1: please everybody, that's for sure. I think you've come to that conclusion.
3: Well, yeah, we're not even going to try to please everybody because if you try to please everybody, you're not going to get anything right. So uh, we are trying to find what is the right balance between uh, allowing construction to proceed and dictating exactly how they get done
1: what's your inclination at this stage? I mean, because there are some that advocate, look, at get it all done at once, get it done and get it over with. Others are suggesting, as I think you heard yesterday, that it should be done incrementally. So you're not messing up the whole city from east to west uh, along the proposed route. Is is there a, a, a tried and true method that, that others have used that you may want to borrow?
3: I don't necessarily think that there's one method. I think every project is unique. Uh, And if you take a look at our corridor in particular, just given the tight constraints of of what we're trying to construct in the the, the tight, fairly tight right-of-way that we have, uh, I would say that we're definitely more unique than some of the other uh, LRT projects that have been constructed recently. So there's no one method. Uh, You had it. Uh, bang on where you know there's some people who say just get in get out you know uh, uh, minimize uh, the time of construction and don't worry about the disruption and you have others who say well you know worry about the disruption and and lengthen the time a little bit so again it's about trying to find that right balance uh and and as you say we're probably not going to please
1: everybody so when do you have to make that determination do you have to wait until it's the day of to put the shovel in the ground i mean obviously we've got a plan for this thing because there are going to be traffic implications i mean traffic flow still has to be maintained
3: Correct, correct. So as part of the uh, the design, build, finance, operate and maintain model that we're using uh, for this project, it is actually the responsibility of the constructor to come up with their uh, construction phasing and staging plan. So we're actually leaving it to them. So we've outlined some high level principles uh, in the document that kind of guide the development of that. So really what we want to do is to is to maintain access to, to all properties at all times. So there there's not going to be situations where entire road sections are closed down where you, you can't even get to them. That That's not going to happen. We want to make sure that we maintain access to property. We want to make sure that that construction that's happening in an area is focused and continuous through an area, that, that they're not doing some work and then leaving for three to four months and then coming back to an area. We don't want to see that. We want to see focused and continuous construction. We also want to ensure that the surrounding Road system is also functional, so you know the north-south arterials play a major role in uh, in traffic uh, uh, diversion. Uh, We have to make sure that those north-south roads stay clear so that people can divert off the corridor and head to uh, adjacent corridors, whether that be uh, Barton Street or Cannon Street, Wilson Street, Burlington Street, uh, to get to those uh, those critical areas to get around the construction. So these principles uh, have to be applied by the, uh, the constructor. Uh, and then we will be evaluating their plan prior to, uh, uh, them even being selected as the preferred proponent. So we, we will know probably 12 months out, uh, you know, what their phasing and staging plan is going to be prior to construction.
1: Will that include, uh, some of the alternative routes to some of the local businesses that are going to be impacted? Cause I know that was an ongoing concern. And well, and I know that your staff just had the same situation with, the. They garner road construction that's happening this summer with Bennett's Apples up there, this iconic uh, business, of course, that's been up there. And, uh, you know, the road's going to be torn up in front of them for most of the summer. But they, You guys have developed a, another way for people to get there. Uh, and I know that was one of the main concerns of some of the special businesses, for instance, along the International Village or on King Street. Uh, is that plan in place right now, or are you still working on that?
3: I'd say that we're still working on that, but but that's, that's very important as part of this uh, this project. And and that comes down to to more communication. Uh, we're only going to be as successful on this project as, as uh, our communication plan is. Uh, so we recognize that uh, it's not just about having good detours in place and having proper diversion in place and making sure that everything flows from a technical perspective, uh, but this, this actually goes back to do people know uh, what's happening, when it's happening, what to expect? expect. How long is it going to take? Uh, and, and that we have a fairly robust communications plan that needs to be developed as part of this uh, through what we have, what we call uh, travel demand management. Um, so we will be communicating continuously, daily, you know, where construction is, what is the impact, what is the travel time from point A to point B. Uh, how do you get to businesses? We're also working with those businesses to, to develop strategies that they can use to try to attract uh, people to their businesses as well, helping them with online presence and, and stuff like that. And also working with the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the Chamber's been great, great partners uh, through this entire uh, process, uh, trying to get that information out there. And if we can get that information out there and we can communicate with everybody and we can make them aware of when the impacts are going to happen and how to get around them and how to get to these businesses, then we'll be successful.
1: I want to get back to Council Ferguson's comments, if I could, for a second, Chris, and, and the comparison that he used with the stadium issue. And I don't want to rehash that whole thing again. But one of the frustrations that he expressed through all of that process was the fact that City Council was basically told by Infrastructure Ontario, hands off, I will tell you what's going on, but you guys don't make any decisions. You don't have any sway over this. And, and of course, there were delays and all sorts of other things. And, and I know that was very frustrating for you as staff members and for the councilors. What Councillor Ferguson seemed to be asking yesterday is, can you do something like this and craft a contract, as he was suggesting, with penalties for, uh, for uh, poor workmanship or for uh, what might be considered, uh, you know, unusual delays? I don't know what there's, I guess there are different variations on that theme right now, but he thought that was one of the main problems with the stadium construction. Can you do something and address those concerns through contractual, contractual phrases uh, with the stung with the LRT?
3: So the easy answer to that is yes, and we're doing that. Uh, You know, it's nuanced, of course. Uh, The unfortunate part is we we do have the stadium and and some of the issues uh, uh, that were generated around the stadium. This is a totally different model. So I appreciate the fact that the stadium was a design-build-finance model. Uh, This is different. This is a design-build-finance-operate-and-maintain model. So that that operate-and-maintain piece that comes on the end uh, really does drive uh, the construction company uh, to get their project done on time. Because if they're delayed... Then they can't start their operations and maintenance period, and, and there's money to be made on the operations and maintenance side. They get monthly payments to do that. So the further out they carry construction, uh, you know, the further they delay their their operations and, and their maintenance piece. So, so there is some tension that's built within the consortium itself to make sure that they they get this project done on time. Uh, there's also uh, penalties. Well, you know, penalties is a strong word, but deductions that. It, that exists within the project agreement itself that look at things like quality, that look at schedule delays that we can apply as well. What I could not give Councillor Ferguson yesterday was the specific monetary amounts around that. There are uh, uh, provisions within the contract that do speak to these types of things. And I think it's also important to note that on this contract, for all city infrastructure, so whether or not we're talking about a water main, a sewer, a curb, a road, uh, a traffic signal, whatever that is that we own at the end of the day, city staff will be doing the inspection. So that's totally different than what we saw on the uh, on the stadium project. We are the ones who, who are doing the inspection. We have the expertise when it comes to, to our infrastructure, so we're going to ensure uh, that what's, what's built is built to our quality expectations and to our standards and specifications.
1: And, and by the way, just to your point there, and I mean, maybe it's worthy of reminding our listeners, that, that there's always a holdback provision in these contracts. Isn't right? No matter what the project is, there's always a certain amount of money that's set back just in case there are some things that need to be fixed at the end?
3: That's correct. So on this project, we have a 15% holdback provision, uh, and that's 15% of the total value of the construction cost itself. So if we assume, you know, based on the numbers that have been floated around, that there's a billion dollars associated with uh, capital costs, uh, that would equate to about 150 million dollars. That will be available for those types of warranty type issues uh, that may pop up beyond the standard two-year warranty period, say 10 years down the r- uh, line. That we can look back and say, "Well, yeah, the performance of that didn't meet the expectations." Uh, that you know, whether it's on our infrastructure or whether it's on the LRT infrastructure that's owned by uh, Metrolinks, we can then draw upon that to to, to mitigate or fix those uh, uh, those situations.
1: I got an email a week or so ago uh, that I wanted to run past you here. I'll just paraphrase it, Chris, and it's from somebody who actually owns property along the the, the, the route here uh, and, and has, I guess, been in some discussion with the city at this stage uh, about selling, et cetera. Now, uh, my understanding is there are about 90 properties still that be done. I guess 22 of them, I guess, have been sold or purchased by the city right now, uh, which is not a very high number. Are you concerned that that's, that process is slowing down, and is there concern that that could slow down the the eventual beginning of the construction?
3: No, not really. Uh, we're on track. Uh, we are active right now in purchasing all of those properties and all the property that we require within the corridor. I believe it's our obligation to have the the properties purchased, or you know, the MetroLink's uh, obligation to have the properties purchased. I believe by sometime in 2020. So there's still a little bit of time there. Like we still have about 12 12 to 18 months uh, to acquire all those properties. And I know that uh, our property acquisition unit is is working hard to to meet those deadlines. Uh, But there's never been any indication to me that uh, we're behind schedule uh, when it comes to property acquisitions.
1: Uh, Is expropriation a, a tool that probably is going to be used here? Or do you feel as if you can just do this through a free market negotiation?
3: Ideally, we prefer not to. Uh, however, uh, that that's probably likely here. Uh, what the level of expropriation would be is, is undetermined at this point in time. So far, negotiations have all been uh, willing seller, willing buyer, very very uh, voluntary, uh, very amicable. Uh, however, as we go along uh, and we start to get into some of the more difficult uh, properties and maybe some of the smaller partial properties, uh, property takes, uh, we might have to get into uh, an expropriation situation. But again, our, our preference is obviously always uh, willing seller, willing seller, willing buyer.
1: That's that could be a time-consuming process, though, can it?
3: Uh, it can. Again, I'm not an expert when it comes to expropriations or the Expropriations Act. Uh, but yeah, there are there is timing uh, associated with that, uh, and we just need to be aware of what that timing is so that we can have the property in our hands or at least uh, under our care. Uh, by the time we need it for
1: construction. Uh, And we should remind people, by the way, I know that there's a scenario that may be conjured up in some people's minds of somebody holding out and saying, I want $3 million for my house or I'm not moving. Uh, Expropriation usually just equates to market value, doesn't it? I I know you're not an expert in that field, but that seems to be the the starting point for the discussion.
3: So you you nailed it. I'm not an expert (laughs) when it it comes to this. Uh, But, yeah, I would say that what you said is fair, that it's generally market value.
1: So that, that's going to move on its process. Are you confident this thing's going to get started on time? I, I, I know that some of the councillors are saying the time frame for the construction itself. But uh, obviously, for, given this, the political scenario that's going on, and, and that's, I know that's not your wheelhouse. Your job is to just get this thing done. But there are some concerns, and those that are supportive of this project, as you've heard, simply say, look, the sooner we start this thing, the better. Uh, you, you're comfortable with the time frames?
3: I think we're still comfortable with the timeframes. Uh, so the RFP was released back on, uh, what, April 13th. Uh, so we do have the bid companies right now, the three shortlisted firms who are actively uh, putting together their proposals to, you know, design, build, finance, operate, and maintain uh, the LRT in Hamilton. And, you know, so we're looking at that bid process to, to close about 12 months from now. Hopefully we have a preferred uh, constructor proponent. Uh, on board kind of summer 2019 they'll need to do some design work and you'll probably see some preliminary construction starting towards the end of ni- uh, 2019. So that's what we're looking for and we're, we're, we're sticking to that schedule right now nothing's changed.
1: Chris Jacobson is the acting director of the LRT project for the city of Hamilton. Now, Chris thanks so much a busy day for you appreciate the time. Not a problem anytime.
0: The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.